I want to, I want to re- reiterate what Johnny just said. If you're visiting here, we hope you feel welcome. We hope you feel this is a place where you can bring your doubts, your questions, and then you feel safe here. So we're glad that you're here. <clears throat> I'm going to be continuing the, the series in Hebrews this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 25, if you have your Bibles. Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 25. Now, if you'll notice, this is a pretty long passage. Plus, to properly understand it, we have to go back and explain virtually half the Old Testament. So I'm going to do my best to have you out of here tonight by 8 (laughs) o'clock. If you get hungry, somebody call in some pizza. We'll take a break. So Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. Jews in New Testament times, some in various stages of belief, some who don't believe, some who believed and then didn't believe, some who believed and are mature. And it follows this arc where it presents Christ as better. So early on, you see Christ is better than Moses, prominent Old Testament figure who all the Jews would have understood The Hebrews would have had a great sense of this, more than we do in a way. It would have been in their DNA almost. And we come to chapter 7, and there's the introduction of this mystical character in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. And so in this passage, um, I'm going to read it in a minute, but a couple things to note. One of the things that it does is it mentions again twice Psalm 110. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned a couple times, just a couple times in the Old Testament Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, if you want to read that later. And then Psalm 110, verse 4. And Psalm 110, verse 4 is mentioned here twice. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is a messianic psalm. God is letting the Israelites and believers know what the Messiah will look like. And he's saying that the Messiah will be a priest forever. Now, we knew that the Messiah was going to be a king coming from the tribe of Judah, but he has also deemed it good to name him a priest. He's going to be his priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he compares the Messiah to this mystical figure, Melchizedek, who's mentioned just briefly in the Old Testament, and so the writer, <clears throat> excuse me, the writer of Hebrews here <clears throat> is divulging more information about who this interesting character is in Scripture so that we might learn more about him today. So let me read with us. If you'll read with me, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not, 
who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these scriptures. There's so much here for us to digest. We pray that you would open our minds to your truth that you have for us today. Where our hearts are hardened, we pray you would soften them. Lord, we pray that you would convict us of sin, show us where we are in error. We pray today that you would give us wisdom and guidance in interpreting what you have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. So I'm going to divide this passage up in three different sections. We're first going to look at Hebrews um, 7, 1 through 3. We're going, to have a, we're going to have a section there. And then we're going to proceed with um, 4 through 10. And then we're going to save the best part for last, 11 through 23. So first section, 1 through 3. Now, if you look at the overall if you were going to summarize overall what's happening in this lengthy passage, Melchizedek prefigures Christ. And so what does that mean? That means that he shows us what Christ is going to be like. Now, can you imagine if in Scripture God used your name and said, you are what Christ is going to look like? So this figure is an amazing figure in history. We can learn a lot from him. But Melchizedek prefigures Christ. And so I have three broad points we're going to make, the first pertaining to this section, and that is Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He represents 
Christ. The first way that he does this is, is that he is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. So we see that in verse 2. His name, when translated, means righteousness. King, so he's a king of righteousness. And Salem, or Jerusalem, means peace. He is a king of Salem, king of peace. So he's a king both of righteousness and peace. Now, one, immediately off the bat, one thing that we can learn from this is peace does not come without a foundation of righteousness. Peace comes with a foundation of righteousness. So in our lives, if there is an area where we do not have peace, one thing we can do is we can go to God and say, Dear Lord, I'm not experiencing peace in this area of my life. Is there something that I need to see is our course correction that I need to take. Go to him. He's very happy to answer that prayer. Now, when you consider that Melchizedek was, we, who do we think he is? We think he is an actual human being, a man, who was a Canaanite king in Canaan. Abraham is called up to go to Canaan. Abraham is there. There's a, other, there's, a, there's a whole lot of other city-states, Canaan, Canaanite city-states, who are known for their wickedness and idolatry. And so we hear, here we have a man who is ruling a city-state in righteousness. Now, I don't know to what extent you've ever been involved in, di- in the dynamics of leadership, but when you have unrighteousness all around you and you're trying to do the right thing, it's very difficult I think it's difficult to put ourselves in his position and understand the difficulties that he faced maintaining a righteousness and leading his people in the right way. So he's amazing just from that standpoint alone. So he's a king of righteousness and a peace. And then so is Christ. Christ is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. The next, the next thing we see is that he's both a king and a priest. Now, this would be a little, this is different than what we see in the rest of the Old Testament, which highlights, of course, Israel. But in verse 1, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. This is unusual because in Israel, the king or the monarchy was always separate from the priest. There was sort of a, it was sort of checks and balances, if you will. It's the way that God designed Israel, the government of Israel, to be. And the reason for this is God meant for the priesthood to be holy and separate and set apart. And there, were, there was judgment brought on kings who violated this command to, to combine the offices. The first was King Saul, the first king of Israel. He offers sacrifices. He's getting nervous. He's about to go into battle. And he was commanded to wait. But he offers sacrifices because he's getting nervous. His men are fleeing from him. Samuel the priest shows up and says, what have you done? The kingdom's going to be torn out of your hands and given to someone who loves the Lord. And it was given to David. And the other example is King Uzziah. He burned incense in the temple. God judged him, and he immediately um, contracted leprosy out of judgment for that. So the two offices were not meant to be combined, but here we have a man who's both a king and a priest, And so is Christ, a king and a priest. He's a leader who leads in judgment, but he's also a priest who mediates before God. 
He stands between men and God so that when God looks at you, if you're a Christian, if God looks at you, he's looking at you through Christ. Priest is a mediator. He brings two adverse parties together. He is an intercessor. He stands between. A priest is someone who brings people to God. So he's a king who rules, but he's also bringing his kingdom to God. And so is Christ. Now, why do we need a priest? I've just mentioned that. More importantly, we need it because once upon a time, Adam and Eve were in the garden. Everything was perfect. They had all this produce, all these trees. They could eat from any of them, but one. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All this other produce they could choose from, somehow, it's kind of like when you, tell, when you tell your kids, don't step in that mud puddle, what's going to happen? The one fruit that they shouldn't have eaten somehow ended up in their mouths, right? But it's more than just a taste test. What it was was they wanted to be like God and know what he knew. So there was a challenging of his authority. And so when you challenge authority of the ruler, there's consequences. But when you challenge the authority of the most high God, you're committing treason against the king, but you're also committing cosmic treason, which God is eternal. The penalty for an offense against God is an eternal punishment. So Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. Centuries are set up around it so they can't re-enter. Paradise is lost, Genesis 3. There is a separation from man and God. And this is passed down, Romans 5, genetically. We are at enmity with God the moment we're born because we inherit this from Adam and Eve. The very thing they were created for, communion with God, has now been rent asunder. So God enacts a plan to bring a Messiah, someone to deliver us from this, this trouble, and that's the reason we need a priest, to join us back to God so that we may be back in communion with God for the very thing that we were, we were created for, to be in right relationship with him. That's why we need a priest. Next, he's a priest of the Most High God. We see this in verse 1. And so is Christ. <clears throat> now, who is the Most High God? He's the one who created all of us. He created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 and 2. He created galaxies we'll never, ever know or see. He created microbes that we can't see. And he created us. He knows us better than ourselves. The one thing that I think is important, if you're growing in Christ on your path as a Christian, the one thing that you have to overcome, the hurdle that you have to get your mind wrapped around in terms of who God is, the most high God, he's the God over all other minor deities, is that he's sovereign. By definition, if he is God and we're human, we fall somewhere below him. And so we have to come to terms with this. And that can be tough early on because we come out of the womb again on our throne. We don't want him anywhere near our throne. Sovereignty means he has the right to rule in power and authority. Absolutely. Absolute sovereignty means he gets to do whatever he wants, 
whenever he wants, however he wants, no questions asked. This bumps up against everything that we desire, everything we want to do, because sometimes, honestly, his will overrules ours, and we don't like that. But we have to come to accept, if he would have us do something differently than what we're bent on doing, we have to recognize, can we trust at that moment that he's good and that he knows what he's doing better than us? That, too, is very difficult to come to terms with sometimes because the world is screwed up, is it not? So Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good, for those who love God and called according to his purpose. Can we really trust him? Is he good? But whether we like it or not, there's a sovereign God, so we have to come to terms with this. So he was the priest of the Most High God in subjection to the Most High God, in right relationship with him, submitting, bending the neck, bending the knee, bowing to God, letting God sit on the throne of his heart. And this is what we're called to do too, and this is what Christ is. Christ is a priest and the most, most high God, bringing us and his people to God. And then lastly in this section, verse 3, Melchizedek has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now this is figurative, of course. Some would say, well, this is a pre-incarnate Christ, but the last phrase of this of this. Um, verse, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so it says he resembles God. The broader point here is that this sort of also breaks with convention of what we would expect in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, it was very heavy on genealogy and lineage. It was important for the Jews to know where they came from. But here's a man that supersedes genealogy. He sort of appears, and then what happens to him, we don't know. And honestly, I think that's the way that God wanted it to be, right? Christ also is eternal. His eternal ministry supersedes, he supersedes the Levitical priesthood. So he's a greater priest. So that's sections one through three. Now moving on to section, or verses four through 10. In this section, we would say that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now, this is important because the Hebrews, if there was one person that they would have revered, they were all connected to genetically by DNA, it would have been Abraham. In fact, you see in the New Testament, the Pharisees are arguing with Christ, and Christ says, um, or they say to them, Abraham is our father. And he says, but if you would have obeyed me, then Abraham would really be your father. Your father's not, not really Abraham. But they put a lot, there was a lot at stake riding on them for, or a lot, lot at stake riding on the fact that Abraham was held in such high esteem. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. So here is this mythological figure, this mystic figure, Melchizedek. What's happening in this section? So Abraham, first of all, let's not discount him. He is one of the most astonishing, amazing figures in, in the Old Testament, someone we should esteem. He is the father of the faithful. Why? Because he demonstrated over and over and over again enormous faith. Oh, that we had the faith that Abraham has. He first demonstrated faith by, by listening to God when God called him out of Ur the Chaldees. This city, archaeologists tell us, 
Archaeologically speaking, it was very advanced. They had ziggurats before there were pyramids in Egypt. It was a highly advanced civilization, fairly wealthy. So he would have probably been prosperous there. His family was there. It was kind of the height of civilization in that region. God calls him to leave, to go to a place that I will tell you. Doesn't even tell him where he's going. And what does he do? He obeys. Another instance of his great faith, and probably the, the penultimate example would be what Johnny talked about last week, where he was willing to sacrifice his son. Has a child, his wife has a child in her 90s by a miracle, because she's unable to conceive at that point. And God calls him and tests him to see if he's willing to give up his only son and sacrifice his son. And he does it. The Bible says he awoke early, steadfast obeying, didn't wait, partial obedience, something we can all apply to ourselves. Partial obedience is not the same thing as obeying. So you should consider if there's an area in your life where you're partially obeying, not fully obeying, that is incomplete obedience. Abraham obeyed, tested, and he was, it was counted because he trusted God. It was counted as righteous. And so when we trust God also, it's being counted as righteousness to us through Christ. So this is not, saying, this is not nothing that Melchizedek is perceived as being greater than Abraham, right? So in verse, verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. This is yet in this story here, this point, and you can read about this in Genesis 14, Abraham is again demonstrating great faith. His nephew Lot had been captured. There were five city-states that had revolted against some, cities, some um, kingdoms to the east, these kingdoms to the east were coming to put down the revolt. There was a battle, and the five city-states lost. And Lot was in the group that got beat. And so he's captured. Abraham gets wind of it. He assembles his a fighting force, goes and gets some allies, and he goes up and defeats them in a, in a, in a brilliant strategic military battle, defeats them at night, splits his forces, brings back the spoils, and brings back all the people. And so then what happens, Melchizedek comes out, he brings out bread and wine to greet them, sort of a communion supper, if you will. Blesses God, recognizes that the battle that has been won is due to God's grace. Also, so should we. When something significant happens in our life, we receive a blessing. We need to give credit to God. Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High, acknowledging God's blessing in his life in the lives of others, and then he blesses Abraham, who he recognizes as the heir to the promise. Abraham, in response, gives a tenth of the spoils, a tithe. So tithing is nothing more than acknowledging the sovereignty of God, that he controls everything that we have, everything that we own, our time, our talent, our brains, we also need to recognize that we're stewards of what we have. It's not really ours. It's been given to us by God. 
And so we owe it back to God to give back to him what he's given to us. So if tithing is difficult for you, another prayer you can pray is, Dear Lord, help me to see the things that you've given me. Help me to see them as yours. And help me to loosen my grip on the things of this world. So Abraham gives him a tithe. And it says here in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So the one who's doing the blessing is superior. Melchizedek is blessing. And the one who's tithing is paying homage, paying homage to the greater. So Abraham is paying homage to Melchizedek. Therefore, it's a double proof, therefore Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And so this leads in verse 9 to our next section, but before we leave this, one might even say that Levi himself who received tithes paid tithes through Abraham. So Levi would have been one of the great-grandsons of Abraham. His grandson Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Levi. And God chose Levi and his descendants to be the priestly class in Israel, to administer the sacraments, to administer the rites of the temple, the sacrifices to maintain the temple. Also, the Levites were sort of to act as health inspectors stationed in cities around the country. They had a special role. They were set apart as priests, or another way we would say that, set apart as holy for for the Lord's service. And so when the Israelites would come to the temple, they would pay tithes to the Levites, the priests. So they were the one class who was used to receiving tithes. But the author of Hebrews makes the point that Levi, the tribe of Levi and the priest, would be subject or would pay tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. Therefore, they were subjective or subject as well or under Melchizedek, a greater priesthood. And so if we extrapolate that Jesus is Melchizedek, a greater Melchizedek, and we look back, the sacrificial law was meant to bring us forgiveness, was the temporary system that God set up for forgiveness of sin. If you look back past that, there was a greater priest, Melchizedek, the whole time Christ had been there prefiguring what was going to happen as a symbol to the Israelites. So the third section, verses 11 through 25, this section we would say Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Levi's. Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Levi's. So there's a number of proofs for this. There is a change in the law in verse 14, if you catch it. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Now the Messiah was to come through the line of Judah, the lion of Judah. And indeed, that's where Jesus descended from. But what's happening here due to God's direction is that the tribe of Judah, the king, is also to be the high priest, superseding the tribe of Levi. And then in verse 19, a better hope is introduced. 
who is Jesus. Jesus, a better hope through which we draw near to God. Paradise regained. We can have a restored relationship with God through Christ. This is probably the most significant verse in the entire passage. Because what we do is we strive for perfection, do we not? But this, part, but this section of Scripture in verse 11, it says, now perfection had been attainable. That's a rhetorical statement. Perfection is not attainable. We know that, do we not? Perfection is not attainable. And then in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. It's even more explicit here. And so, something to take home, keeping the rules, keeping the rules and our attempts to keep the rules does not make us perfect. Keeping the rules does not make you perfect. The law was established simply to show us our need for Christ. The Israelites failed at keeping the law. If you look at how the Old Testament ends, it goes poorly for them. And just the amount of blessing they received over time, the miracles that they experienced, God removing them from Egypt to setting up an an amazing, magnificent kingdom, the law did not help them keep the rules. Now, we do this today. We may not think that we do, but we do. We set up in our lives systems in order to be okay. Do you do this? We think because we have this innate knowledge that there is a perfect standard to stand before a holy God, a perfect standard is required. And so we will set up systems in our lives to make sure we're going to be okay. It may be a quest for a perfect house, perfect spouse, perfect kids, perfect family, perfect relationships, perfect vacations. So I want today to release you. When you walk through that door in just a little bit, I want you to stop striving to be perfect. You are released today from having to be perfect because Christ has released you from being perfect. Next, In verse 21, Psalm 110, Christ's priesthood is confirmed by an oath. And Johnny mentioned this last Sunday, but not just any oath, the oath from God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priests forever. Unlike the the Levites, there was lineage, so a priest would arise, he'd be the priest, He would die. Another Levite would come and fill his place. So the priesthood was appointed by lineage. But in this case, the messianic priesthood is confirmed by an oath. And and therefore, Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levites. Again, the narrative that we're going through in Hebrews is basically helping the Hebrews understand that Christ is better than the entire Old Testament system. And then third, Christ is a priest. Christ's priesthood is forever. 
That's again, verse 21. You are a priest forever. So, where does this lead us? This leads us to, we have a better priest in Christ who brings us back to God. He is similar. We learn from him. We learn what he's like from Melchizedek. So I want to read to you, we have a tendency a lot of times to camp out in our justification. We believe we've called on God to save us from our sin. We believe that he has saved us. But we don't yet believe, and so this is sort of the equivalent of the the law part of salvation, justification that we receive. But we don't go to the next step, which is Jesus, our priest, is seated at the right hand of the Father as a king in all power right? That power is available to us over our sin. And so we sort of stop and camp out in what we would call the Aaronic priesthood, or Aaron, the first priest in the history of Israel, and we don't go further till Melchizedek. So I want to read you, this is from a preacher from the 19th century named Andrew Murray, In the opening verses of our epistle, we found the work of Christ divided into two parts. When he had effected the cleansing of sins, that was after the order of Aaron, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, that was the order of Melchizedek. There are too many Christians who see in Christ only the fulfillment of what Aaron typified. Christ's death and blood are very precious to them. They do seek to rest their faith upon them, and yet they wonder that they have so little of the peace and joy of the purity and power which the Savior gives and which faith in him ought to bring. The reason is simple, because Christ is only their Aaron, not their Melchizedek. They do indeed believe that he is ascended to heaven and sits upon the throne of God, but they have not seen the direct connection of this with their daily spiritual life. They do not count upon Jesus working in them in the power of the heavenly life and imparting it to them. They do not know their heavenly calling with the all-sufficient provision for its fulfillment in them secured in the heavenly life of their priest king. And as a consequence of this, they do not see the need for giving up the world and and to have their life and walk in heaven because you have a priest in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father, there's so much, there's so much available to you, including power over your sin. Power over your sin. I had a... Um, once upon a time, there was a pastor here at this church who made a statement that stood with me It was very helpful to me, and so I'm going to try to remember how he said it. So it's going to be a bit of a paraphrase. But it it, it impacted me, and I hope it's as helpful to you here, and it, it gets back to this point. And that is, when we are justified, we were in a dungeon cell, right? It's dark, it's damp, and we're chained in this dungeon, and God in his grace comes along and opens the cell and unlocks our chains. And in our justification, 
the chains are loose, and we at that point are forgiven, and we are given a clean slate. But so often what happens is we continue down a path of sin, sin maintains a power over us, and we do not see Christ sitting on his throne. We haven't moved to that. Sanctification, God has just as much ability to save you and sanctify you as he did to justify you. And so just like you called out to him for your justification, for your initial salvation, if you're struggling with sin, you can call out to him to help you have power over that sin. You can walk out of the dungeon. But too often, we believe that we're free, but we stay in the dungeon when we can walk out and experience newness, life, and power over sin. It's amazing. We also, the song, the hymn, the second hymn we sang before the throne of God, this is a picture of Hebrews. Go back and look it up and read it, but it, it expresses more beautifully than I can. We have a priest. When God looks through, has to look through him to us, and his wrath is satisfied. Therefore, our position in heaven next to Christ is secure. One other way of, of stating this would be, I know you've, mentioned, you've heard me mention this during corporate prayer, but this church basically fell out of the sky. I consider it a miracle. But if you look at the price of this property, roughly $6 million given to us as this congregation. I find that astonishing. And so think of it, that would be a little bit like you arrive at the door on Sunday and there's a price that has to be paid for you to come in and sit and enjoy these pews, right? And that price is $6 million. And I stand at the door and I say, you can't enter unless you write a check for $6 million. And you say to me, well, I don't have $6 million. God is standing there. He pulls out his checkbook and he writes a check for $6 million for you so that you can come and sit here on Sunday morning. Now, if that's what he's going to do, just so you can be here on Sunday mornings, what do you think he's willing to pay to save you from your sin? He's willing to go to the ends of the earth for you. He has freed you from your sin. He has paid the price. And I want to close with this. This is a story by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a children's story. The best stories sometimes are children's stories. It's very simple. But this gets to the heart of fact that we have been freed and our great high priest has paid our price. So it's entitled Freed. We were slaves to sin, but Jesus paid the price to buy our freedom. And now we're free. Wait. Free to do whatever we like? There's a story told of a man who once bought a young slave girl at an auction. As they left the slave auction, the man turned to the girl and said, you're free. She turned to him in amazement. You mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. And to be whatever I want to be? Yes. And even to go wherever I want to go? Yes, he laughed. And you're free to go wherever you'd like to go. And she looked at him intently and replied, Then I will go with you. That's what our Savior's done for us. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful. 
You no longer call us slaves, you call us friends. John 15, 15. Thank you for the great sacrifice that you made through Christ. How Christ is sitting on his throne, interceding for us right now. We thank you for the power that's available to us over our sin. We pray that we would trust you just as we trusted you on the first time. We pray we would trust you when we go through this week at the first encounter of difficulty that we remember you can save us there just like you saved us before. Help us to rely on you. Help us to trust on you. Help us to put aside the ways of the world. We thank you for the great gift you've given us.